Well, my name's Evan. I'm one of the assistant pastors on staff here, and I am excited to dig into God's word with you this morning. And if you haven't already, would you turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7? Our text for this morning will be Ecclesiastes chapter 7. You know, the summer of 2009 will forever be etched into my soul. It was the summer between my junior and senior years of high school, and I was living my best life. I had just starred as Danny in our high school's sold-out production of Grease, (laughs) and I had just landed the lead role as Wren, Kevin Bacon's character, in our local community theater's summer production of Footloose. No, I will not prove this by dancing for you today. But in all seriousness, I spent that entire summer focused on one thing, me. I wanted a great performance that would lead to an epic curtain call where I would be applauded for my amazing talent. I wanted the spotlight, I wanted uh, the accolades, I wanted people's praise. Not only that, I, I did whatever I wanted, I flirted with whatever girl I wanted, I hung out with whoever I wanted, and I made sure in every context that people knew just how awesome I was. After countless rehearsals, show weekend came in early August and the final curtain had fallen and the applause was over. And walking out of that theater that Sunday afternoon after our final show, I found myself immediately spiraling into a very deep, very real sadness. All that work, all that effort to gain people's adoration was gone in the blink of an eye. That evening, we had a cast party to, make, to mark the end of our summer journey, and after that cast party was an even smaller group of casts who put together an after party. And to make a long story short, I found myself contemplating this new depression around 1 a.m. on the tailgate of a truck while watching high school students, college students, and several grown adults who knew better get drunk and make fools of themselves. You see, I was raised in a Christian home. I was brought up in the church. But three years prior to this moment in my life, I weighed the options of living for God or living for myself. And I made the conscious choice that my own pleasure, my own satisfaction was the better path. And after three years of pouring my entire life into myself and in this pursuit of music and theater to win people's praise and to have what I thought was the good life, I found myself empty and longing for something more. And that night, I'll never forget when I hit rock bottom. When an adult, an adult who I looked up to the entire summer reached into his bucket of beer, offered me, a 17-year-old high school student, a bottle, and told me that I needed to relax, let go of my morality, and embrace the fact that the meaning of life was to pursue whatever made me happy. I had been doing that for three years, and it, it left me miserable. And in that moment, I recognized that if life was about me, then life was worthless. And it left me wondering, could there be anything good in this life? And 
And friends, we actually find Solomon this morning in our text in a similar situation. Remember, friends, as we've journeyed through Ecclesiastes, we've learned about this man named Solomon, who was one of the great kings of Israel, who had everything he could ever want. He had wealth upon wealth, an enormous palace, unmatched military power, and he had all the pleasure that he could ever want with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Friends, that's a thousand partners, a thousand women. And over the last four Sundays, we have journeyed through the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes, and we have watched Solomon live his best life, seeking knowledge and pleasure and vocational success and wealth and possessions and honor and status. And then we have heard him declare seven times in six chapters that all he has found is, quote, vanity and a striving after wind. But this morning in chapter seven, we find a different older Solomon, who's looking back on his life and giving an honest account of all his vain attempts to find meaning and joy. This Solomon seems calloused, raw, and fatigued. Preacher Matt Chandler describes the Solomon we find here in chapter seven as a granddaddy who's done it all. And now in the final season of his life, he invites you, his grandchild, to sit with him in a dark room, sipping plain coffee, no cream, no sugar, and you dare not ask him for it. And after a few moments of sitting in silence, Solomon takes a deep breath. And then he begins to share with you all the wisdom he's found, just hoping that you'll believe him, just hoping that you'll listen to his mistakes. But in order to understand chapter seven, our text for this morning, we must first read the last verse of chapter six. So would you look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter six, verse 12. When you're there, say, got it. it. (laughs) Solomon says this, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Here in verse 12, we find two very important questions. You see, after six chapters of searching for meaning, Solomon shifts here at the end of chapter six. This is known as the direct middle point of Ecclesiastes. And he asks two enormous questions, which he'll spend the remainder of this entire book examining. And our text today, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, is solely focused on seeking the answer to Solomon's first question here in verse 12. Let's look there again. He asks this, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Man, that's a deep, kind of dark question, isn't it? Solomon is asking, Who knows what is good for man? And to be more specific, to get more granular, what Solomon is really asking is this one question. What is good? This is the one question I have for you this morning along with Solomon. This question right here, what is good? If you only take away one thing from our time together this morning, I really do hope it's this question. What is good? is 
good. Turn to your neighbor, ask him, what is good? <laughs> what is good? In our text today, we will find three contrasts that Solomon uses to answer this one question. That's it, one big question and three contrasts. And we're gonna dig into that now. Are you ready? Are you ready? (laughs) You're with me, I love it. This morning we'll find three contrasts. And the first is this, prosperity or pain. While seeking to answer the question of what is truly good, Solomon first examines both prosperity and pain. And with each of these contrasts, we're gonna take a poll in the room this morning to which one you think is good. Everybody's gotta participate and it's really simple. All you have to do is raise your hand for one. So with this question in mind, what is good? Who here thinks prosperity is good? Raise your hand. Don't look around at your neighbor, it's all right, it's all right. There's no judgment here, all right? Who thinks pain is good? All right, not everybody voted, but that's okay. We'll have two more, two more opportunities. The only way to find out which one is good is to look at, the, at God's word. In this first section, it spans 14 verses, but we're only gonna look at the first four this morning. So would you look with me at Ecclesiastes 7, verses one through four. Solomon says, a good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death and the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. I just want to state, if you haven't noticed so far from the scripture reading that Hunter read to the first few verses of our text, this is not an easy text this morning. If you feel somber, it's okay. I'm going to ask you to think through hard things, and that's okay. And here in this first contrast, Solomon acknowledges that humanity naturally longs for prosperity. But he exclaims that true meaning in life and true goodness is actually found in moments of pain. In the very first line, he talks about prosperity here in this Proverbs-like section. And Solomon states this, a good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment here is a simple metaphor for luxury in the ancient Near East. It's meant to exemplify wealth and prosperity. And Solomon wants his reader to understand that though your natural human tendency will be to long for prosperity, actually a good reputation is even better. And next, upon that, he starts to build his most central point here. And he makes a rather dark statement in the second half of verse one. He states... The day of death is better than the day of birth. And then he doubles down on this statement in the the next three verses by saying that mourning, sorrow, and sadness are better than feasting, laughter, and mirth, or jubilation, joy. And what does all this mean? Is, Is Solomon saying that he's wishing for death, grief, and suffering? No, that's that's not his point. 
Is Solomon saying that the, the days of celebration, such as birth and feasting and laughter and joy, is he saying that they're bad? No, he, he's not saying that either. What Solomon is saying is that painful experiences and painful seasons are actually better than seasons of prosperity and celebration because pain and discomfort cause us to wrestle with the true meaning of life and existence. In moments of sorrow, grief, and loss, we naturally find ourselves asking the deeper questions of our humanity. We ask the question like, why? Or how could this happen? Think about the last time you attended a funeral. And when you looked upon your loved one's lifeless body, what went through your head? What questions did you wrestle with? What realizations actually gripped your soul? I'm willing to bet that in that moment, your own mortality and your future death crossed your mind. You see, friends, pain causes humanity to search for truth in a deeper way than prosperity and celebration ever could. I'm bad at transitions. I want to lighten the mood just a moment here. Dude, <laughs> thank you, Pastor G. Do we have elementary school students in the room this morning? Elementary school students, can you wave at me? Are you here? Good. I'm really glad you're here. Have you ever had a total wipeout on your driveway or on the sidewalk? You know, you're riding your bike or, I guess, hoverboard. I'm old. Uh, and, you, and you lose focus for just that one second, and next thing you know, boom, you're on the ground and your knees are bleeding. I'm curious, what happened when you got back on that bike or hoverboard? I'm willing to bet the next time you got on, you rode a little bit more carefully than you did before. The pain caused you to think more deeply about what you were doing. And that, friends, is just a small example of Solomon's point here. Pain causes humans to contemplate the things of life in a deeper and more significant way. But let's look at how Solomon concludes this first contrast. Look with me at in verses 13 and 14. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity or pain, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Wow. Solomon here is saying that God's sovereign plan for our lives includes both days of prosperity and days of pain, both celebration and adversity. So brothers and sisters, I'll ask you again, what is good, prosperity or pain? And Solomon declares that both are good, but one is better, pain. Would you respond to this first contrast this morning by saying, hmm. Three contrasts. Contrast number two. Righteousness 
or wickedness. While seeking the answer to the question of what is truly good, Solomon next examines both righteousness and wickedness. All right, time to vote. Who says righteousness is good? (laughs) Okay, who says wickedness is good? I'm very glad to see no hands in this room. Thank you. But you might be surprised at Solomon's answer. Take a look with me at verses 15 through 22. He says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. But be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. It's pretty raw, isn't it? Solomon opens this second contrast of righteousness and wickedness by pointing out the difficult reality that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Throughout the Old Testament, and especially in wisdom literature such as Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs, scholars refer to a concept called the retribution principle. And it simply states what's seen in scripture, this principle that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. But what Solomon points out here is that though this principle is true, it's not a guarantee. He acknowledges that sometimes life is turned upside down and on this side of eternity, those who love God will suffer and those who hate God will prosper. And from this realization, that's the groundwork of his bigger point here. He says this in the next few verses. This is just me shortening it. He says, be not overly righteous. Be not overly wicked. It's good that you should take hold of this. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. What in the world is he saying here? (laughs) Is Solomon really instructing followers of God not to pursue righteousness? Or is he he giving us permission to pursue wickedness? No. (laughs) No, he's not. And if he was, he'd be contradicting all of Scripture. Rather, what Solomon has in view here is the extremes of what we should call super-righteousness and super-wickedness. Super-wickedness is a little bit more self-explanatory, but we're going to start with super-righteousness. Super-righteousness is the extreme pursuit of righteous living that attempts to manipulate God so that he will give you something you want or so that he will change your current circumstances. Friends, Solomon right there is speaking directly to church folk. He really is. And if we're honest with ourselves, all of us have been guilty with this within our lives at some point. This... This point illustrates itself, but to give you, to be a little transparent, to give you a a real-time understanding of super-righteousness, 
I'm tempted by the sin of super-righteousness almost every time I get the opportunity to preach. Doesn't matter where. The sinful temptation that I have fought and wrestled with in my heart this week has been to pray more, be more Christ-like, and study as hard as I can so that God will be pleased and bless me with a great sermon so that you will be impressed with me. Friends, that is wickedness in my own heart. That is the sin of super-righteousness. And it's okay if you think less of me, that's all right. Christian, I, I give you my example to ask you, is there anything in your life today that is an attempt at super-righteousness to manipulate God? I want you to think about that this morning. So we have this super-righteousness, and then we have the other side, which is super-wickedness. He says, Solomon says that you should not be overly wicked. And Solomon here is acknowledging the true fact that you and I, this side of eternity, before we are made sinless completely in Jesus, you and I still struggle with sin. As followers of Jesus, have we been redeemed? Yes. Can you say that with me? Yes. But as follow, or on this side of eternity, do we still struggle and wrestle with a life of sin? Yes. Unfortunately, yes. Thus, Solomon, along with the entirety of Scripture, exhorts us here to flee our sinful desires and not to allow them to control our lives. So, brothers and sisters, what is good, righteousness or wickedness? And interestingly, in this context, Solomon says neither. Would you respond to this second contrast by saying, huh, yeah, Solomon's good at turning the world upside down, isn't he? <laughs> three contrast. Contrast number three. Humanity or God. <laughs> While seeking to answer the question of what is truly good, Solomon considers the ultimate contrast of humanity and God. And we have one last vote, y'all. Show of hands, who says humanity is good? Who says God is good? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's look and see what Solomon says. Look with me at verses 23 through 29. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. And here is his conclusion. Don't miss verse 29. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I'll be honest, this is probably the most dangerous text I could have ever been assigned to preach. <laughs> I think Solomon's trying to get me in a bit of trouble here this morning. And I mean, honestly, for a guy who had a thousand wives, you'd think he'd be a little bit more careful with his words. Uh, 
Um, all joking aside, we'll get to that part, the, the hard part here in a minute. But Solomon's wisdom in this final section is crucial. First, he confesses that his own human attempts to search out wisdom in what is good were not good enough. Don't forget, Solomon was supernaturally given immense wisdom by God as a young man in 1 Kings chapter 3. God declared that the wisdom he bestowed on Solomon was far beyond any human that had come before him or any human that would ever come after him. Yet Solomon, here in this final contrast, admits the depths of true wisdom, aka the mysteries of God and his plans, are far deeper than he could ever grasp. The wisest human to walk the earth said that. The depths of God I cannot reach. And he uses that to build on his, his point. Secondly, I'm sure you notice this not, small, this not so small comment about men and women. And at first glance, it seems like Solomon is saying men are better than women, but rest assured that's not his point. Friends, Solomon is using hyperbole here. He is exaggerating to make a very clear point that all of humanity, men and women alike, are rotten, miserable creatures. Basically, he's saying this, humanity stinks. <laughs> in verse 29, if you don't believe me, in verse 29, he makes the point clear. Look with me there again. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Solomon embraces the truth that humanity has fallen far from their creator and they are in desperate need of their holy and righteous God. So high school students, you in the room, I'd make you raise your hand, but I don't want to embarrass you. That was a bad joke, sorry y'all. Uh, high school students, I want to talk to you for just a moment. The pressures you feel in this current moment in history are enormous. The pressure you feel goes a little bit like this. At school, you have to study extremely hard so that you know exactly what you're going to do professionally so that you can get into the best college to get the best degree that lands you the best job so you can make tons of money, get a high-capacity spouse so you can be a super successful power couple with adorable children and picture-perfect posts of your family so that all your followers will be impressed and so that your life has out-of-this-world extraordinary meaning, significance, and value. Does that sound familiar? Guys, this pressure, this success narrative is simply another vain human scheme. It is exactly what Solomon is talking about here in verse 29. It is a tremendously deceptive, human-created, vain attempt at trying to attain a good life, and it's flat out wrong. It places you, a mere teenage human, at the center of your entire existence. It makes you your own gods and friends. Students, this scheme will wreck your life. If you don't believe me, look at Solomon. It's a perfect example. He had everything society tells you that you need, and after having it all, he declares that none of it matters, and all of it is vanity that leads to an empty life. In all his attempts to find goodness and meaning from human schemes and human desires like sex and wealth and success and power and status and fame, Solomon comes to this sobering conclusion. 
Humanity in all of its schemes are deeply broken and in desperate need of a holy and righteous God. Solomon here looks at humanity and he realizes that God is the only true good. So brothers and sisters, what is good? Humanity or God? And Solomon proclaims with the rest of scripture, God. Would you respond to this final contrast by saying amen? Pretty bleak message today, huh? In all seriousness, it's kind of a Debbie Downer. By, <laughs> by asking a seemingly simple yet crucial question, what is good? Solomon's examination of reality seems to twist the world as we know it. He says, pain is better than prosperity. We are so wicked that even our attempts at righteousness are stained by sin and humanity stinks. But remember, sadness and gloom are meant to teach us. Sorrow, pain, and hard truths are professors in God's university called life. And all this bad news, Solomon actually says is good news because it points to the one true good in this life, God. The ultimate answer to today's question, what is good, is simple. It's one word, God. Sure, it, it might sound cliche, it's your typical Sunday school answer, but it doesn't mean it's not true. God is the only true good from which all true goodness comes. Jesus, God in the flesh, declared the same truth in Mark 10:18 when a rich young man comes up to him and says, good teacher, and Jesus, when he hears this, he responds with a magnificent statement in the form of a question, and he says this, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He wasn't contradicting this young man. He was challenging him to see the deeper reality that stood right before his eyes, that Jesus, in fact, is good because he is truly God. Amen? And this good teacher, this good God, Jesus, stepped down from heaven 2,000 years ago to take on the human flesh and live a truly good and God-honoring life. And during his life, he perfectly lived out the three contrasts that Solomon spoke of this morning. He endured pain, immense pain, and walked through it faithfully knowing that it was all part of God's plan. He lived a truly righteous life free of all wickedness and sin, and he is the one human in all of history that doesn't stink. Because he's truly God. You can, if we're gonna clap, let's clap, right? Amen. And here's the twist. And though he was perfect, sinful humanity rejected him. They sentenced him to death. And Jesus offered up his perfect life and died on a Roman cross, but why? Why did Jesus, this truly good God, do all of this? Here's why. He did this to live perfectly in our place because we couldn't, and to die perfectly in our place so that we wouldn't have to in order to offer us true, good life in him. Friends, if you are searching for the good life, the world will tell you to look inside yourself, and I, along with our good friend Solomon, promise you 
that all you will find inside yourself is vanity. You see, true goodness is found in God alone, in Christ alone. And when you surrender and center your life on him, only then will you find true meaning, true purpose, true goodness, true life. You know, the the book of Ecclesiastes is all about living faithfully in a frustrating world. We've heard that from our previous preachers in this series. And from what we've learned here this morning, I want to equip you to live in this frustrating world with one point of application. (laughs) One challenge for you, I know. Information heavy, application light, I apologize. But here's the application. I challenge you over the next six days, would you ask yourself this question as many times as you possibly can? What is good. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, this question is for you too. What is good? When you wake up in the morning, ask yourself, what is good? When you're commuting to work, ask yourself, what is good? When your children are stressing you out and pushing your buttons, ask yourself, what is good? When you're visiting the loved one in the hospital or you yourself find yourself in a hospital bed, ask this question, what is good? When you can't sleep in the dead of night, when you're celebrating a loved one's birthday, when you're tempted by that addiction, when anxiety rears its lugly head, when you're enjoying a delicious donut between services, or when you're enjoying a luxurious piece of Costco pizza, (laughs) or This week when your boss is being a jerk, or better yet, when you're the boss and you're being a jerk, ask yourself this question, what is good? And why am I asking you to do this? Because this question will give you an opportunity to recalibrate your understanding of your present reality. It gives you the opportunity to realign your heart with the true goodness of life, God himself. Friends, it's, this question, it's, it's not a silver bullet. It's not a magical spell that's gonna take away your pain. But it will help you see reality clearly. Would you ask this question with me this morning? What is good? Let's pray. Father, um, I admit this is not easy truth to speak of. I feel the weight of the pain of my brothers and sisters who are in this room or watching online. I've asked them to consider you in the midst of pain. But Lord, we know your word is good. And it's true because you yourself are good. Wrestle with us this week, we pray. Give us strength to ask this question in every moment, in prosperity and pain. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.